and welcome to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode is a panel from the 2019 Left Forum entitled Dismantling the U.S. Empire's Fake News. It's based on a book co-authored by panelist Danny Haifang entitled American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. The panel abstract on the Left Forum website reads as follows. Thomas Jefferson called the U.S. an empire of liberty. Barack Obama called the U.S. an indispensable nation. These manifestations of American exceptionalism and American innocence provide the doctrine of U.S. empire building at home and abroad. Danny Haifang and Roberto Servant's new book not only exposes this doctrine as myth, but also analyzes its impact on the class struggle to develop a world free of U.S. capitalism, war, and white supremacy. Join anti-imperialist activists and journalists in a discussion about the book and its relevance as a tool toward dismantling the actually existing fake news of U.S. empire. The panel was sponsored by Black Agenda Report. We start now with Danny Haifang. So let's discuss this book. I'm going to talk about four points, that uh, actually three points that I want to highlight. And I'm going to mostly talk from direct analysis with well, some passages from the book. So the first point is, American exceptionalism really relies on this narrative of the American dream and American prosperity. And at the core of these myths is the profit motive. The U.S. is a capitalist society where rugged individualism is celebrated and the so-called free market rarely ever questioned. The pervasiveness of American exceptionalism and innocence is a large reason why. Its purveyors in the corporate media in Washington tell us that dictators in nations such as Syria are brutalizing their own people, but rarely mention the brutality that capitalism levels upon workers and poor people right here in the USA. Instead, we are fed the narrative that the U.S. is the most prosperous economy in human history. Here, workers can lift themselves up by their bootstraps and achieve the American dream, which is a euphemism for getting rich by working hard. Yet most Americans find themselves working harder and getting poorer. Black America, for example, according to the Economic Policy Institute, is in many ways in worse economic condition than in 1968. Black America possesses a higher unemployment rate than in 1968 and is dangerously close to possessing zero wealth by 2050 if current trends persist. This sounds more like what Malcolm X called an American nightmare rather than an American dream. The myth of the American dream, which is regurgitated ad nauseum by corporate sporting leagues such as the NBA and figures such as Ellen and Oprah, make us feel that prosperity is in reach when in fact we are being fleeced by an entrenched oligarchy. This oligarchy became fat from slavery and indigenous genocide, then took its system global to become the most formidable empire on the planet. After World War II, the U.S. comprised of over half of the world's gross domestic product. This is when the myth of the American dream reached its peak popularity. Some economists have called this age the golden age of capitalism. Indeed, living standards for millions of people improved as a result of the massive expansion of the war industry and redistributive policies that were largely fought for and won by the efforts of labor. But what did the narrative of American exceptionalism and the American dream leave out? It left out millions of people who were killed as a result of U.S. military spending during World War II. 
This includes the U.S. firebombing of Dresden alongside the United Kingdom. In just one day, the U.S. and the U.K. killed up to 30,000 civilians in a city that was seen as insignificant to the greater war effort and mostly about intimidating the Soviet Union. It also excludes the black Americans who remain subjected to the terrorism of Jim Crow. The myth of the Golden Age negates completely the reality that thousands of workers went on strike and forced the U.S. capitalist class to concede the right to form a union and the right to Social Security, among other policies that improved living conditions in the post-war period. The Golden Age of American capitalism was always fleeting. During the Golden Age, anti-communism was encouraged and socialists were suppressed by McCarthyism and the FBI's COINTELPRO operations. This allowed the ideology of American exceptionalism to flourish in the labor movement, and the struggle for social justice was divided and unprepared for the assault that was to come in the mid-1970s. Wages have been stagnant since this period, and currently just three individuals, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, own more wealth than the bottom half of the U.S. population. Four to five people in the U.S. live paycheck to paycheck, and nearly half can't afford a $500 emergency. Thousands die in the U.S. each year from a lack of health care, and hundreds of thousands sleep outside or in a shelter on any given night. One must really be asleep to believe in the American dream. The second point that we really stress in this book is white supremacy. And white supremacy and American exceptionalism are a two peas in a pod. American exceptionalism cloaks the crimes of the U.S. imperial state under the banner of whiteness. When this banner is challenged, the rulers of the system cry innocence. Our book doesn't seek to justify or challenge the white supremacy of Donald Trump or the political right as vile as it is. More concerning is the ways in which American exceptionalism has been propped up by the so-called liberal opposition to President Trump. We've seen this in the ongoing Colin Kaepernick situation, which we also highlight throughout the book. The NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick was banned from the NFL for standing up to the racist military state as personified in its national anthem. Trump's comment that Kaepernick was a son of a bee and should be fired elicited an equally problematic response by those who see Trump as an embarrassment to American exceptionalist ethos. NFL owners and the corporate media demanded that the nation come together to fight Trump while ignoring the substance of Kaepernick's protests or the fact that he remains blacklisted from the NFL. American exceptionalism then not only manifests as the fiery patriotism and openly chauvinistic politics of people like Ray Moore, but also the supposedly well-intentioned reform efforts spearheaded by wealthy self-identified liberals in the Democratic Party. The ideology reminds us that white supremacy isn't bigotry alone, It is a system of power that relies on mythologies to oppress, exploit, and destroy its targets. So American exceptionalism really equals white supremacy. The United States is the largest apartheid state in the world and the longest standing. It is a monument to white supremacy whose formation depended upon the corpses of enslaved Africans and indigenous people. The afterlives of slavery live on in the mass incarceration regime, which warehouses two million people 40% of whom are black men or the quote-unquote mud people that Wells Fargo financiers referenced when they were preying on the black community leading up to the 2007-2008 crisis. Hundreds of black Americans are killed by the police each year, and black unemployment is twice that of whites. An ideology that presumes the United States as a force for good in the world, which American exceptionalism does, must also believe that white supremacy is a force for good in the world. 
The third point that I want to really stress about the book is inclusion and diversity. This is a very pervasive political strand in the left at this time, and we believe it's one of the most insidious forms of American exceptionalism in this era. We have two chapters dedicated to this question of inclusion and diversity, uh, Saving American Exceptionalism, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and the Politics of Inclusion, and The Violence of Inclusion where we argue that the focus on diversity is a response to the revolutionary movements of the 60s and 70s. These neoliberal narratives tell us that the U.S. has come a long way by drawing a straight line from the struggles of black Americans for self-determination to the rise of leaders such as Barack Obama. The same goes for the struggle for women's rights and the rise of people like Hillary Clinton. Obama, Clinton, and the so-called inclusive members of the ruling class operate as valuable weapons of counterinsurgency warfare against radical and revolutionary social transformation. Their unquestionable loyalty to Wall Street and the war machine has made this explicitly clear. Inclusion and diversity are meant to comfort us and show us that a more reformed, indeed a more civilized-looking society exists. One can find diversity initiatives in every university or at least most universities and colleges in this country. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, recently praised right-wing Supreme Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh for hiring an all-women's clerk team. In 2016, Hillary Clinton demanded it was her turn to be the first woman commander-in-chief. The corporate media has praised the likes of Boeing and Lockheed Martin for being run by mainly women executives. And during the annual Pride celebration this year, the NSA tweeted an image of its headquarters in rainbow colors. We argue that diversity and inclusion promote a dangerous form of careerism and loyalty to the dictates of American exceptionalism, American innocence, and the imperialist nightmare that these ideologies protect. While the political right has no interest in including black Americans or anyone else deemed inferior within its ranks, the Democratic Party has become the engine of diversity. Democratic Party elites tell us that diversity is what the U.S. is all about and that the careers of individuals like Clinton, Obama, and others like Kamala Harris demonstrate that the U.S. is an indispensable nation. In the book, we criticize the politics of inclusion but avoid repeating right-wing talking points about identity politics, which are driven mainly by racial animus. We don't take part either in the debate about the virtue of representation or diversity in the abstract. Rather, we call attention to the very real impact that the politics of inclusion have had in rendering the U.S. empire a more effective evil, not a kinder one. Let's take Barack Obama. Black Agenda Report, we love talking about Barack Obama because he's been so important and so damaging to the movement. For eight years, Barack Obama was heralded as a living example of Dr. King's dream and the struggles of black Americans for equality. And for eight years, no matter how far Obama and his administration flanked to the right, The Democratic Party machinery told progressives and leftists that he was the change that we all deserved. So as we say in our chapter on inclusion, Obama's two terms in office did indeed bring about change, but it was the type of change that benefited U.S. imperialism at the expense of oppressed and exploited people. Obama chanted, si se puede, yes we can, during his campaign, and then deported 2.7 million undocumented immigrants. His solution to the 2007 and 2008 economic crisis was not to punish the finance capitalists responsible as promised during the campaign, but to feed them trillions of dollars worth of public bailout money that only enhanced wealth and income inequality. 
Under his administration, Obama would massively expand the war on terror surveillance apparatus to the extent that the National Security Agency possessed the phone, email, and online communications of every American citizen. He also prosecuted a record number of whistleblowers under the Espionage Act of 1917, including Chelsea Manning. By 2014, the Obama administration had transferred three quarters of a billion dollars of military weaponry to police departments. And this increase, that was 24-fold from the Bush administration, was heavily criticized after it was found out by the Black Lives Matter movement, revealed by them, that black Americans were being murdered by the police at a near daily rate. Obama's foreign policy was equally destructive. Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009 only to tell his aides in 2012 that he was, quote, good at killing people, end quote. He wasn't lying. In contrast to just 52 drone strikes under the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration conducted several hundred drone strikes and murdered over 4,000 people, including several American citizens, in countries such as Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia, and Afghanistan. His method of signature strikes chose targets based on suspicious behavior. To the administration, this was defined as all military-aged men in the aforementioned countries. Covert warfare, such as special operations forces trained in strike-and-kill missions, expanded greatly under Obama to the point where they were deployed in over 70% of the world's countries. What is both dangerous and ironic is that innocence and exceptionalism, as manifested by inclusion politics, are often used to dehumanize and eliminate oppressed people. It is a politics of respectability that must be discussed further in our political organizations, activist circles, and in our communities. We must ask who and what do these politics serve? We say that they serve the war machine and the rich. Our primary goal is for readers of this book to understand that American exceptionalism and American innocence make it difficult for us to see that the U.S. is controlled by a ruling class that is ruthlessly exploiting workers and oppressed people for their own gain. We do this by, one, highlighting the historic struggle of black people and other exploited sections of U.S. society for total liberation from white supremacy, capitalism, and imperialism. Two, by analyzing popular culture such as sports, opera, and the popular musical Hamilton as monuments to white supremacy, empire, and capitalist dogma. And three, not only accounting for the distance between the realities of working people and poor people to the myths of American exceptionalism, but also urging readers to develop an anti-war and anti-imperialist movement that is committed to solidarity with working people and poor people abroad through the participation in an ideological struggle. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is a panel from the 2019 Left Forum entitled Dismantling the U.S. Empire's Fake News. It's based on a book co-authored by panelist Danny Haifang entitled American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. We just heard from book co-author Danny Haifang. Next up is Dan Kovalik. Dan Kovalik is a human rights and labor rights lawyer and a peace activist. I think American exceptionalism is a quite entertaining subject because if it weren't so sad, it's actually quite funny. And Harold Pinter, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, talked a lot about American exceptionalism and he talked about how witty a trick it is when you think of it. And and one website that's really gotten into the wittiness of American exceptionalism lately is The Onion, which I urge people to take a look at 
which is really enjoying satirizing American exceptionalism. And so here's one example that I think goes along really well with Danny's book. This is a uh, title from The Onion recently. Bolton argues war with Iran, only way to avenge Americans killed in upcoming war with Iran. (laughs) Now, this is hilarious. It is, and it's silly, and yet... It really encapsulates part of what Danny's talking about in the book about American innocence and about America as the victim. And no matter what situation, I'll give you a good example where this logic that the onion discerns was used. And I I was just amazed, and maybe some of you in the room remember this. So in the early days of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, there were these two Defense Department spokespeople. A guy and a a blonde woman who would go on TV every day and explain to the American people what was happening with the advance, the heroic advance of the Americans into Iraq. And at least on one occasion, they said, look, we have to tell you what happened today. American vehicles and tanks, we rolled in to Iraq and we were met by a pregnant woman who stopped the vehicles only as a pretense to throw a bomb or hand grenade at one of the tanks. And I'm not kidding when I say that they said, this proves why we needed to invade Iraq, because this is the type of people they are. They send pregnant women to attack our vehicles. They literally said this. This is John Bolton's reasoning. We had to invade Iraq because of the way they would defend us when we invade. And similarly, the statement was made about Venezuela. I believe it was John Bolton or Mike Pompeo, I don't know, remember which, but they said, trust me, if we invade Venezuela, they will kill American soldiers. <laughs> and so this is part of this, again, incredible ideology, which again, on its face... When you look at it, it is amusing and crazy, and yet it is believed. Even if people don't know what the words American exceptionalism mean, inside they carry this with them every day. Actually, I wanted one of the things Danny said, uh, it made me think of another quote. Actually, one of the best quotes about American exceptionalism I've heard recently was a couple years ago, and this is the quote, and then I'll tell you who said it. He said that we, we, we judge ourselves by the best of our intentions and we judge others by the worst of their conduct and think about that it's absolutely true right if we kill two to four million people in Vietnam it's kind of an oops Eh, sorry we meant well yeah we do horrible things once in a while but we're nice guys if other countries do bad things whether they're real bad things or imagined or made up it defines who they are they're bad right This was a quote by George W. Bush in 2016. I think the one interesting thing about American exceptionalism, as the book goes into, is that it is based on a number of things. It's based on untruths, but it's also based on an unwillingness to face who we are. In 1905, the Democratic National Platform had this in the platform. It said that a country cannot exist one half republic and one half empire, which actually is a quite profound statement. 
And pretty important today when we're probably a quarter Republican, 75 percent empire, if it's even even that good. However, at the moment and for some time, the U.S. has refused to recognize itself as an empire. It's the only empire that has ever existed on this planet that hasn't admitted it's an empire. Meanwhile, the Romans had 33 international bases, uh, military bases, when they had their empire. The British, at the height of their empire, had 36 international military bases. The U.S. has at least 800 international military bases, but we're not an empire. It's really one of the most incredible mind games ever played. Which also, and the other thing this book that I like about American exceptionalism, it gets into also popular culture in Hollywood as promoters of American exceptionalism. You know, in one movie, of course, that comes to mind when you talk about empire is Star Wars, right? Where the empire is so important, right? The whole struggle is by the, the fledgling rebel group and the empire. And when I was growing up, and I assume like a lot of kids my age, because I was probably I was what, seven or eight or something at the time I first started Star Wars, I identified with the rebels and thought that they, that was the U.S., Right, fighting against maybe the Soviet Empire or an imaginary empire. It didn't matter. But as I later grew up, I realized how absurd that was. But my guess is that's most how, how most Americans think. Meanwhile, those on the left, I learned later, those who had grown up in the 60s, thought immediately that the rebels had to be the Vietnamese fighting the United States, which actually makes a lot more sense. right? But, but that's how we've really turned the world upside down in this doctrine of American exceptionalism, where not only is the U.S. innocent, it's always the underdog. That's the other incredible thing. We have more nuclear weapons. We have the biggest military by far in the world. And yet somehow we're always the underdog, right? And the other part of the, of the innocence and the victimhood is also the no right of others to defend themselves against us. That's a very important part of all this. You look at Vietnam, for example, and what was the causus belli of, of the big uh, congressional authorization of the war in Vietnam was the Gulf of Tonkin incident. First of all, it didn't happen. Okay, let's start with that premise. But what was said, what was said to have happened, that the Vietnamese attacked two U.S. naval ships in international waters while the U.S. was pounding Vietnam with napalm and Agent Orange mercilessly treated, including women and children. This goes back to the founding of our country. And that's why now with Iran, the U.S., again, incredible notions of entitlement the U.S. has. Again, a part of American exceptionalism. U.S. sends naval ships, troops, drones, etc., to the Persian Gulf, where the Iranians live, and says, we want to fight. We want to fight you. Starts shooting stuff into the air, including drones, and then when one is shot down, you're attacking us. How is that possible that we're the ones being attacked, that we're the victims? But again, it is that underpinning of American exceptionalism that is so important to them. One of the very important and the most spoiled children of American exceptionalism is humanitarian interventionism, another subject of the book, right? Which is now, I believe, you know, you know, competing 
doctrine, which is, is maybe the most strong pro-war doctrine I've ever seen. And Amer- humanitarian interventionism, or R2P, what responsibility to protect, these are doctrines, again, very linked to and come from American exceptionalism. They are the ideas that the West and the U.S. in particular not only may but must intervene around the world in defense of human rights. And it is such a powerful doctrine that people, including and especially liberals, tend to believe if the U.S. is not bombing somewhere, the U.S. is not upholding human rights principles. Again, that sounds outrageous, but let's take a recent example. After one of the alleged chemical attacks in Syria, Trump responded by a bombing raid in Damascus near the airport. I believe that's, that's what he hit. In any case, he was applauded by the liberal media, by liberal pundits, as acting presidential. Do you remember that? It's one of the few times they acknowledged that he was acting presidential. Why? Because the U.S. must act militarily in order for human rights to be upheld. That is a, an assumption. When, of course, the real assumption people should have is that for human rights around the world to be protected, the U.S. must refrain from intervention and must stay home. One of the most fascinating and illustrative examples of this mind manipulation was the run-up and the invasion of Libya. And why? So first of all, one of the intellectual authors, one of the people who pushed for that intervention was Samantha Power. Ms. Genocide herself, right? She became famous with a Pulitzer Prize winning book called A Problem from Hell. It's a thousand page tome about genocide and how the West has screwed up, not by committing genocide. She never talks about any of those examples because, of course, the U.S. never commits genocide. But they've screwed up by not doing enough around the world to stop genocide. So she became Obama's ambassador to the U.N. And as ambassador to the U.N., she pushed for the invasion of Libya to defend human rights and prevent genocide. So NATO bombs Libya, as we know, for uh, many months, does topple the regime of, or the government, we call it a regime of Muammar Gaddafi. And what is the result? Genocide. Not only did she not prevent genocide, she and Clinton and Susan Power helped create it. And how? Not just by siding with jihadists in Libya to overthrow the government, but by a lie that they made to justify that invasion. And the lie was that Gaddafi was using black mercenaries to fight his war in Libya. This was not true. In fact, the media was happy to repeat this lie, and they said, you know how you can tell the black mercenaries? From their uniforms, they wear yellow hard hats. Yeah, they were construction workers. But what did this do? Not only did it help lie us into a war that destroyed a nation, a a nation now that has slaves being sold openly on the streets, but it marked black Libyans for genocide because they weren't people, they weren't workers, they were mercenaries. And so during and after the 
toppling of Gaddafi, the jihadists went after black people in Libya. They depopulated black towns. They arrested black people en masse. They summarily killed black people, and now they're enslaving black people. This is the height of hubris and hypocrisy that really, to me, illustrates this dangerous doctrine of American exceptionalism more than any other. And I will just end with this quote by Eduardo Galeano, who said, every time the U.S. saves a country, it converts it either into an insane asylum or a cemetery. That is why what we need to do is not be looking for the next place to intervene to protect human rights, but the next place to stop a war by the United States. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is a panel from the 2019 Left Forum entitled Dismantling the U.S. Empire's Fake News. It's based on a book co-authored by panelist Danny Haifang entitled Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. We just heard from Dan Kovalik. Next up is Black Agenda Report Executive Editor Glenn Ford. Power to the people. This book is really exceptional. It's a wide-ranging book and very creatively put together, but its wide-rangingness is really of necessity because exceptionalism is baked in to the American narrative and into the American popular consciousness. And saying that exceptionalism is baked in really is just another way of saying that lies are baked in. Uh, The U.S. mythology is a lie. It is a fallacy. The U.S. corporate media, their job is to, every day, create a narrative for what is going on in the world that makes the United States seem exceptional and a force for good and alternatively one that is under attack from every Lilliputian in the world all the time. They have to handle these contradicting narratives, but they do it. That's what being a journalist in the corporate media is today. How uh, people who are skilled at handling contradictory narratives, neither one of which is true, and constant lies and making them seem sensical. This is a difficult skill that they have mastered, but it has nothing at all to do with journalism. Now, I think it's important that this book really examine at so many levels the baked into-ness of white supremacy in the American history. Because even people on the left, since it has been so baked in, don't recognize the primacy of white supremacy as, part of, as, as the mission of these folks nearly uh, enough. The brother was talking about U.S. empire today. Well, these founding fathers, they thought of what they were doing even before they had defeated the British colonial army. They thought and they verbalized it that they were putting in motion an incipient empire for them coming from a much smaller place, Europe, 
a small country. Many of them had disembarked from Holland, <laughs> little tiny places when you get to a U.S. scale. And here they were looking out across this continent saying all of that should by right be ours. Meanwhile, there are more people living on that continent than their little colonies on the eastern fringe. But they believed that they had it by, uh, they said, divine right, but everything they did and also said by racial right, because these people were not uh, human beings. So in their Declaration of Independence, their founding document before there uh, actually is uh, a government, they blame the Brits. They explain why they want to separate from the Brits by saying that the British are exhorting these savages, meaning the Native Americans, against us, and they are encouraging the slaves to revolt. Well, so that is their justification for separating from the British, because the British would not allow them to continue their unlimited depredations against the Native people with whom the British had agreements and the British uh, settlers thought might be too amenable to the prospect of eventual emancipation. So they had to get out of there. So this place was founded on the maintenance of white supremacy and the expansion of white supremacy. And it's only in very, very recent years that they have found it necessary uh, to cloak that whole history. We need to look at the United States as a white settler nation. And if we do, then everything that it in fact has done in history makes great sense. And that history of the development and expansion of a white settler nation goes directly to the present day. The United States' closest relationships uh, with other nations in the world is with what's commonly called the five eyes. The five eyes are the United States, Canada, Britain, New Zealand, and Australia. The United States shares almost all of its intelligence on a regular basis. That is, day to day, not upon request, you get it when I got it with those five nations. And who are those nations? They are Britain and its white settler states, uh, colonies. The United States had to go through a makeover of the stories that it told internally and the stories that it told uh, externally, the lies, to others and to itself uh, after World War II as it becomes the superpower, the unchallenged superpower on the capitalist side of the ledger. But that is a period of decolonization. And the Soviet Union, and I don't want to hear people talking about Stalinism and all that stuff, the Soviet Union being a champion of decolonization in the world and having given material aid to liberation movements in the world was the ideological competitor with the United States with these emerging nations. And so the U.S. had to radically change its, its, uh, its clothing. I think one of the most dramatic crises that the United States faced as it tried to put on these new inclusive and racially progressive clothes that really didn't fit at all was with the Little Rock crisis. 
That is when these young black kids were trying to integrate the schools in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, and these mobs of thousands of white people, most of them white women, turned out screaming, spitting, cursing, threatening to kill these little kids. Half of them drunk. It was a real spectacle. The United States did not look well in that spectacle, and that was the one of the first stories of modern television. This is before Birmingham, 1957 in Little Rock, and it was a profound embarrassment to the United States. And so we see President Eisenhower, who was a racist and segregationist himself. He had opposed the desegregation of the army, so we know how he stood on that. Sent in the troops because he had to in order to forcibly change the clothes of the United States. But we need to not look at this ever-changing picture, which it is the corporate media's job uh, to collaborate in shaping and reshaping, but the actual history of the United States. And and then we understand better uh, the forces that we have to contend with while we struggle in the United States. We don't have the luxury of fighting against new and remade villains. We need to know what actually motivates Americans and what are the precursors of the institutions that we struggle against today. We have to understand that the United States was the world's first racially regimented society. And it was a big country. It wasn't like Liechtenstein deciding to racially regiment people. This was a huge and the most dynamic, because of slavery preceding this, the most economically dynamic country in in the world. And they set about the project, this is during Jim Crow post-emancipation, of creating the first fully racially regimented society. And Hitler admired that, and he said so. That's what he wanted to do with his country, and this big, vibrant country had already done it. And of course, South Africa admired that. That's what they wanted to do in the country in which they were the minority. So the United States has not just been embarrassing in its racial peccadilloes. It is the champion of white supremacy in the world. And in fact, if you understand that it is the champion of white supremacy in the world and deserves that description, then you understand why we have the Boltons that our friend was describing. These are white supremacists to the bone, but they didn't come from a strange place. They came from the United States. That is what is baked into folks. And it does affect people who become or even who have been lifelong leftists. It's only been a matter of maybe four or five years or so that we on the left have been speaking as if everybody knew that U.S. chattel slavery was a distinct form of capitalism, one that had institutions that resemble financial instruments that are used today, that were in fact the generally used instruments to secure slave populations in the 1800s. But I remember that even people who called themselves Marxists wanted to put slavery off to the side somewhere 
that it had its own rules and that labor relationships and the super exploitation and the speed ups on the plantations, well, that didn't have much to do with free labor and the struggles of free labor. This can only be explained. That is, that American Marxists would go to such lengths to distort their own analyses to somehow put slavery and therefore the race question off to the side and call it some kind of other phenomenon rather than being a very distinct capitalistic institution that in fact was the engine that catapulted the United States into the world power status that it gained. So deconstructing the lies is a constant job for anybody living in America and trying not just to tell the truth, but to make sense out of this situation because the lies have poisoned not only everyone's attitudes towards everyone else, making us all have to deconstruct our daily, what we did all day to see if we, <laughs> if we let these prejudices uh, sink in, but it, it infects all of our conversations and our strategizing. That is, we, we really, I believe, have to, as activists, examine our personal behavior and our institutional behavior methodically as a matter of our work ethic to see if we are operating on some of the universally spread in the United States lies that actually work against the projects that we're engaged in. This is a deep subject, and I think that the charm of the book, but also the utility of the book, is that it takes often a humorous approach. They're saying, you know, we're not just being fed lies, but we're living these lies. And when we live these lies, we affirm them and we make them true. That is, there are consequences to these lies and trains and trains of consequences. And you, you lose track of the fact that it began with these lies that we also participate in transmitting. You know, the United States had that big problem in terms of its competition with the Soviet Union, which actually did aid colonized people and uh, liberation movements. But then the Soviet Union dissolved and the United States became the strutting white supremacist bully that it always had been, but there were no breaks to its behavior. And that's when we see hyper aggression becoming daily U.S. policy and now accepted, as was explained, as the proper behavior for a superpower. Superpower must bomb, lest someone forget that that's what he does. And so uh, have we bombed lately? And people, that is, people in the United States, accept it. People around the world are appalled and shocked and terrified by it and become determined to somehow, by hook or crook, get rid of this uh, mad dog country. But it works in the United States. And it's now working among a segment of the black population of the United States, which used to, in my youth and even when I wasn't young anymore, be generally immune to much of the white supremacist imperialist propaganda that comes out of all of the organs of the rulers of the United States. In 
not mixed company and black company. I remember we used to talk about who they bombing now, who they messing with now, what they doing. It was very clear, and this was the commonest way of black folks speaking to each other. It was very clear that we did not identify with the actions and the motivations and, and the uh, purported interests of the United States. But it's been a long time since we've had a movement that actually articulated what black folks do believe in. And so that kind of skepticism of power, which was the mark of black politics, has been weakened. And now with Russiagate, we see the spectacle of Maxine Waters, who not too long ago was righteously accusing the CIA of bringing crack into her city of Los Angeles. And she, she, for a long period of time, waged that campaign against the CIA. Now she believes everything that the CIA says, everything the FBI says, and she's strutting around with an American flag to prove that she's now one of the converted. But she's recently converted. And this kind of behavior is rather recent in black America. But it is cause for great alarm. It means that we have not had a movement for so long that those anti-imperialist, anti-white supremacist, anti-rule of the rich sentiments that were hallmarks of black politics, things you didn't even have to explain, they were just assumed. Those are not reliable anymore. And that's quite dangerous. If black folks are the most politically volatile and left-leaning constituency in the country, uh, whose active participation has been absolutely necessary if there is to be broad-based movements for social transformation, if we are getting brainwashed and following behind Auntie Maxine Waters, then that's a problem for anybody who wants to remake the movement. In other words, I think that we who went so long being somewhat immune to American exceptionalism and other idiocies and deliriums are now more prone to infection. And that's bad news for all of us organizers out there. Power to the people. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is a panel from the 2019 Left Forum entitled Dismantling the U.S. Empire's Fake News. It's based on a book co-authored by panelist Danny Haifong entitled American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. We just heard from Black Agenda Report Executive Editor Glenn Ford. Next up is Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist Margaret Kimberly. It's a funny thing. Glenn uh, just made reference to the five eyes, the intelligence agencies spawned by uh, British settler colonialism. And uh, if the truth about Russiagate ever comes out, we will see the role of the five eyes in this story. And I'm I'm deviating a little bit, but it's an opportunity to to talk about it. There was foreign intelligence agency involvement in the 2016 election, but it was MI6. It was the Australians. 
You know, I find it difficult to believe, and nobody should believe, that George Papadopoulos, who was a nobody in Trump's campaign, a volunteer in London, and that the Australian ambassador would want to talk to him. No, he wouldn't. He was being spied on. But anyway, that's another story. Perhaps next year it'll all come out and I can talk about it then. But uh, the subject of fake news. Fake news is all we get in the U.S. It's all we're told as we're growing up. Glenn also mentioned the, the Declaration of Independence. I went to college. I was a history major. But I left college before I knew everything the Declaration of Independence said, and that they specifically mentioned indigenous people, specifically mentioned enslaved people in the Declaration of Independence. And why was I never taught that in 12 years of schooling, in college? Because if you tell the truth, then people behave differently. If you tell the truth, then people know that they're getting lies. So uh, it's fake news as we're growing up, fake news when we turn on the networks, fake news when we read the papers of record, the New York Times and the Washington Post, fake news on MSNBC and CNN. And we have a burden, unfortunately, to learn a lot on our own. And that's, that's of course, why we come to places like the Left Forum. And uh, it amazes me when I look back the number of lies I was told my entire life. I remember when um, the Soviet Union collapsed, and all I could—I th- had a notion that I was being lied to, you know, something about the Russians, as you know, or maybe they said the Soviets. But that this state was much weaker, despite you know being this this monster that was going to you know attack us in our beds at night or something. That it had its own internal problems. And then it collapsed. And I remember saying to myself, you mean to tell me after all, and I was an adult, of course, I was a little embarrassed to admit it now, but um, how many lies, the depth and the repetition through the news, through education, through popular culture that um, I had taken in. And so it's the organizing principle of the country. We can see it today. No one or very few people, question that the U.S. has a right to attack Iran, has a right to attack Venezuela, people who are allegedly respectable. Actually talking about the Monroe Doctrine, I mean, 200 years after the fact, people, they should be embarrassed, but they're not. It's our backyard, which, first of all, sounds so stupid. It sounds like someone, you know, protecting their lawn or something, but it's our backyard, and which presumably means nobody else has a backyard. Does anybody else have a backyard? Russia didn't have a backyard in Ukraine, which was right next door, but the whole world is America's backyard. Venezuela can be, or Iran, any country can be America's backyard. And they talk openly about when uh, Trump called, there was going to be a strike and Trump changed his mind. Was Trump praised by the media? No. They were saying, oh, this sets a precedent, he could be questioned, he looks weak. Liberal media who are allegedly, allegedly don't like him repeated all of these things. In Venezuela, the only issue is whether they were smart enough to have a coup, not whether the U.S. had a right to do it, not whether the U.S. has a right to impose sanctions on that country, which have killed 40,000 people, Uh, according to a recent study, 
Uh, another fact, by the way, that the corporate media don't mention, unless you move in our circles, you don't even know that this happened. But this exceptionalism does not just impact foreign policy. It impacts our daily lives. It impacts domestic policy. A couple of days ago, I, I saw on Twitter Newt Gingrich. I thought he was dead, or, but anyway, no, he's still around, and he's on Twitter. He was tweeting about uh, student loan debt and the question of whether or not loans should be forgiven. And he said, well, if leftists want to do this, they should give money to the people who already paid back their loans. It's not fair to them. Now, I paid my student loan. I don't begrudge anybody. Let everybody off the hook. That's what I say. But I thought about it, and he's not the only one who says this. I've heard people, allegedly intelligent, sensible people, say similar things. And... Um, I think this notion of America being exceptional, it means, well, what it, people think it means, that they live in this perfect society. Americans are incapable of imagining, even imagining something different. So if all your life you're told you have to pay back student loans and somebody comes along and says, ah, maybe not, instead of saying, oh, I never thought about that. Nope, can't be done, shouldn't be done. How are you going to pay for that? People are going to get away with something, all sorts of retrograde opinions, because someone has mentioned something that is different. So it's this weird thing where people can't imagine anything different because we're so wonderful. So when people see something that they should oppose, for example, asylum seekers at the border with Mexico and children being separated from their parents and being, children being kept in these horrible conditions, what people say it's bad, they say they want to stop it, that's good. But then they say, this is not who we are. Well, yes it is. It is who we are. This is a country which keeps more people in prison than any other country on the planet. Where pregnant women are kept in prison and give birth in shackles. Where for hundreds of years, families were separated by uh, the slavery system. So it is who we are. So even in denouncing a policy that people don't like, there's still this resistance, this very strong resistance to acknowledging the history of this country. Literally, it's too painful for people, too much cognitive dissonance, if I may say. So we, we know that people, we, as individuals, we're resistant to change. In our collective identities, we are resistant to change, especially if we feel we're being uh, criticized. And so I, I try to be, um, I guess, somewhat empathetic when I think about my own growth. Most of my life I was a Democrat. Now all I do is talk about dumping the Democrats. But for most of my life I was. And uh, before I... Uh, uh, became part of the Black Agenda Report team and availed myself of some self-education, I was, to a certain degree, part of that cohort. And so I know it's, it's going to be a heavy lift to get people to change, but I also know that it can be done. And when there are crises, that's the moment. When uh, Bush stole the election in 2000, my whole life I was told, well, it's kind of possible you could lose the popular vote and still be elected president, but it is not going to happen. It's, you know, mathematically impossible, but there we were. The man who, person who lost is the one who was sworn in as president. The election was stolen. The party that got 
stolen from was silent and went along. And uh, I, I think we have to use these events, uh, these eye-opening events, to, to strike and to organize and to educate ourselves in the struggle. Decolonizing is a hot term of the day, and it's, but it's a lifelong, a lifelong struggle. I realize there are things I, I say and think, and I have to say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, you know, we can't say, and it can happen, we will use the first person when referring to our government. We, us, our, should we attack Iran? Now, even if your answer to the question is no, why are you making it we? It's not you, it's the government. It's the president. It's the army. So the question is not should we attack Iran or should we do this or that or our national interest. They put all of us in it. Our national interest in fill in the blank. We don't have any interest in these places where our government is doing some sort of uh, dirty work. So thank you all very, very much for supporting us. And please buy Danny's book today. Thank you. You've been listening to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode was a panel from the 2019 Left Forum entitled Dismantling the U.S. Empire's Fake News. It was based on a book co-authored by panelist Danny Haifong entitled American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. The panel was sponsored by Black Agenda Report. You can find Essential Dissent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via radioforall.net. That's radio, the number four, all.net. You can see a live stream of the entire panel, including the Q&A, on the Essential Dissent YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>